0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together.
1: Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4? 1 Timothy chapter 4. You will not have the U version notes. So bring out the hard copy of the Bible this morning. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-16, through 16, a good servant of Christ Jesus. John Knox is quoted as saying, Never once have I feared the devil, but every time I enter the pulpit, I tremble. And I wonder if that rings true for anybody here today. It certainly rings true for the pastors that this is a weighty call. Every time we enter the pulpit... But does that ring true with us? Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Let us pray this morning, and as we pray, I ask that you pray for me, Dear Heavenly Father. We thank you for this day and this opportunity to gather around your word, to congregate, to worship you, to give you the glory to your name. I pray that you illumine our hearts and our minds, that you remove any obstacles between us and your word. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we are trying to discover what it means to be a good servant. Of Christ Jesus and what that good servant does so first and foremost we need to know what a servant a good servant of Christ Jesus looks like the picture of a good servant and we see this unfold starting in verse 6 he says if you put these things before the brothers you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. if you put these things before the brothers so what are the things that are to be put before the brothers Well, there's debate among scholars whether he is specifically referring to chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, the warning of the false teachers and the false doctrines that come from, or if it is everything in this letter altogether. Because we see this theme of these things, teach these things, command these things, put these things before the brothers. And really, in discussing with the pastors, we say it's not either or, but yes and amen. We need to be aware of the false doctrine and teachers, but also of what it means to be a good teacher, a true servant of Christ Jesus as well. The whole scripture of God. And if you put things things before the brothers, you will be what? A good servant of Christ Jesus. That's what we're looking at today. And the word that Paul chooses to use here is diakonos, which is the exact same word that he uses for deacons. Now, this Timothy is a pastor, and he is writing specifically instructions for the pastor, Timothy. So does Paul have his offices confused? Is he calling Timothy an official deacon as well by default? No, because as we saw in chapter 3, the qualifications for a pastor and a deacon are almost identical except for one thing, and that's the teaching role. Pastors will serve the church by leading and teaching. And deacons lead in the church by serving. And if both fulfill the God-given role of pastor and deacon, as described in this letter, then both are a good servant of Christ Jesus. This is what we're after. But the first way in which he describes the picture of a good servant is found here, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. The first and foundational picture of a good servant is that he trains in scripture, Being trained in the words of the faith. The words, plural, all of the words of the faith. This is just a way that we summarize Scripture. A good servant of Christ Jesus is being trained in the entire Scripture. All of the words of the faith. But notice it doesn't stop there. It leads into the good doctrine that you have followed as well. He trains in Scripture and in good doctrine. And Baptists are kind of finicky about this. Baptist pastors can be finicky because they'll say, no creed but Christ. I don't need doctrine. I have the Bible. Well, the problem is the Bible says that you need to train in the scriptures and in the good doctrine. How do we tell what the good doctrine is? The foundation, the scriptures in which the doctrine is derived. And so a good servant of Christ Jesus trains in the scriptures and leads to the training of the good doctrine that you have followed notice that have followed the past tense of this is bringing this back to the foreground meaning Paul is telling Timothy you have made a commitment in the past to train in scripture and train in the good doctrine but now he is saying bring this back to the foreground because you need to being trained being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine not just in the past and I wonder if that rings true for us here today because pretty much everybody that I see here are born-again Christians that I know for sure that have been saved for quite some time. And we have made commitments to train in Scripture and in good doctrine, but do you need that to be brought back to the foreground just like Paul is doing so for Timothy? So a good servant of Christ Jesus trains in Scripture. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the pastor does not enter the pulpit because he's looking for truth. He enters the pulpit because he has found it. A good servant of Christ Jesus must train in the scriptures. But it's not for its own end. It leads to other things, to fruit that follows from training in scripture and a good doctrine. In verse 7, we see have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for what? For godliness. The second picture we see of a good servant of Christ Jesus is that he is training in godliness. Godliness is the goal of this entire passage, and really it's the goal of the entire book of First Timothy. Fifteen times godliness is used in the New Testament, and nine of them are in this book alone. Godliness is the goal. But notice, in order to walk in the goal, you have to what? Train yourself for godliness. Well, how do you train? It's the same language that we used in the previous verse, the immediate context. To train in godliness, you must first and foremost be training in the scriptures and of the good doctrine if you are to train yourself in godliness. You need both doctrine and godliness. Or doctrine and life. Matthew Henry commented that those who teach by their doctrine must teach by their life as well. Else they tear down with one hand what they build up in the other. You need godliness and doctrine, scripture. You need both of these hands in hand, hand in hand. And you need to train in these things. To give your effort, this physical language use of training, of giving commitment and dedication and effort and focus, towards these two things but in order to do that you have to avoid some pitfalls that he warns about in verse 7 have nothing to do with what irreverent silly myths literally translated as have nothing to do with fables fit only for old women is how it literally reads if you have an nasb that's how it reads have nothing to do with fables fit only for old women something akin to what we would say is what old wives tale, old wives tale. And what are the old wives tell? Well, he he uses the exact same word, these silly myths, in chapter 1, verse 4. Look at that. It says, nor devote yourselves to what? Myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. This culmination of false doctrine of speculation and genealogies and codes and things of that nature. These false doctrines from the false teachers that we saw in chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and now know the truth. All these people, the asceticism that he talked about last week, all the silly myths of don't eat this food, pay attention to these codes, look at these genealogies and these feasts and don't eat pork and all the stuff have nothing to do with it. Those are old wives' tale and a true servant of Christ Jesus has nothing to do with those things but rather trains in godliness And he trains in the scriptures. Godliness is what we're really after, not the fake stuff. And Paul doesn't let you escape this at all. And in fact, in verse 8, he keeps bringing us back to godliness, saying, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is the why godliness is important, because it's good now and it's good in the life to come. This is what you can actually take with you when you go. All the physical stuff, whatever that is, will not go beyond the grave. But godliness is beneficial now and in the life to come. He keeps pulling us back to godliness, the the goal, the emphasis in this passage. And just in case you didn't get it in verse 9, he says that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Paul has five trustworthy sayings, and this is number three. They're almost like bookmarks of emphasis throughout his epistles, that these are the important things. So he stops here. He puts a bookmark saying that the saying is trustworthy and deserving a full acceptance. This is an extra emphasis. Perhaps you would see in truly, truly, it's extra important. And Paul only does this for two of the five trustworthy sayings, saying that this is deserving a full acceptance. The saying, what is the saying? The immediate context, verse eight, that godliness is good now and in the life to come. He keeps pulling us back to the goal of godliness. He won't let you escape because the picture of a good servant is to train in Scripture and train in godliness. Same thing, emphasizing this in verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. For to this end, what's the end? The end is the trustworthy saying. What's the trustworthy saying? That godliness is good now and in the life to come. To that end do we what? We toil and strive. And you can see that same language from verse 7. Training yourself in godliness. Training yourself in scripture. You are giving your energy and time and focus to that end. You are striving towards that end because we have our hope set on the living God. And this is just Old Testament language. The living God comparing and contrasting the true God from the false gods. So he compared the false stuff, the asceticism, to the true stuff, godliness. And now he's comparing the true God and false idols because the God is described as a living God, and idols, by definition, are what? They're dead. Just tie it in. Calves, golden calves, they're not animate objects. They're not real. And the things that flow from these false gods... Are the things like the asceticism, the genealogies, the myths, the fables, all the junk? But instead, we have our hope set on the living God. And he describes this living God as what? The Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now that's interesting. Just in case you didn't know, I'll just tell you this is interesting. Because people stumble and misuse and abuse this part of this passage, who is the Savior of all people. The real God, the living God, is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And some people stumble into the heresy of universalism. Universalism states that everybody will be saved. Everybody's going to go to heaven. And they'll use this passage saying, look, it says the real God, the living God, he is the Savior of what? all people. Well, don't you believe your Bible? He says he's the Savior of all people, without exception, supposedly. The problem is is that we see a, a, a difference in without exception versus without distinction. Because if you're going to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, remember where we started. You have to start in the Scripture. The Scripture says that God is the Savior of all people. But that's why Paul doesn't leave it there. You have to also be training in, go- in good doctrine, the Savior of all people, of all kinds of people. Turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verse 22. If we are to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, we have to follow Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so we reject things that Christ rejects, and we accept things that Christ accepts. And Christ teaches that there is a hell and a heaven, and there will be people in both. Luke thirteen twenty two says, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that, pre- in that place, hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are people there. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, that's heaven, but you yourselves are cast out, that's hell. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God, that's heaven. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So we must reject the heresy of universalism because Christ himself teaches of hell and what that is like. And in fact... 95% of our teachings on hell come from Christ himself. Without Christ's teaching on hell, we would know very little about it. So we must reject this. Billy Graham rightly said that if there was more hell in the pulpit, there would be less hell in the pews. So you must apply good doctrine to the scriptures. Because the Bible does say God is the Savior of all people, but not without exception Without distinction. Notice in that Luke passage, he says, people are coming from north and south and east and west. All kinds of people are going to be saved, not just a specific brand or type of person, such as the Israelites. It's not just the Israelites who are saved. All kinds of people will be saved. So it is God is the Savior of all people without distinction. And he narrows his focus there in verse 10 by saying, especially of those who believe, especially those who believe. He sets up a new category. If there are people who are especially saved, then there are people who are especially not saved, by definition. You have both categories. So we reject universalism. And we summarize this doctrine in the famous saying that Christ's death is sufficient for all, but efficacious for some. And who are the some? It says in verse 10, especially those who what? Who believe. Those who believe. So we reject the heresy of universalism. This is the picture of a good servant. He is training in scripture and doctrine, and he is training in godliness. That's what he looks like. But what is the purpose? What's the point? What's the action, if you would, of a good servant? What is the purpose? And we see this unfold beginning in verse 11 through 16 when Paul tells Timothy to command and teach these things. What are the things? The things that we just talked about, the immediate context, the immediate context of teaching of the living God, who is the Savior of all people, those who believe, the goal is godliness, you need to be training in godliness, training in scripture, and good doctrine, all of it. Teach these things, because we start to see the role of the pastor unfold here. He is the teacher, of the congregation. He teaches these things. That's the one the one difference between pastor or elder and deacon. All the qualifications exactly the same, just said differently, except for one role and that's teaching and preaching the word. That's the role of the pastor. So a deacon as a good servant does not have to have the gift of teaching. But a pastor does, because what he is teaching is important. And so Paul says, not only is the pastor the good servant to teach these things, but he is to do so with what? Authority, command, and teach. So the teaching of the true things, of true scripture and doctrine, comes with authority. It comes with spiritual authority. And some scholars think that Timothy was perhaps too timid Of a pastor, and that's why Paul is giving this little reminder here that you need to teach these things and you need to do so with authority because these are important things. Because there are heresies to avoid, there is godliness to train in, there are scriptures and good doctrines to train in. These are important things, and you need to teach these things with authority. In Paul's second missive to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1 7, he says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of what? Power and love and self-control. Teach these things and do so with authority. But as Paul is telling Timothy these things, he's anticipating a problem that Timothy is going to have in verse 12. In verse 12, he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. So he's telling uh, Timothy to teach and command these things with authority because of where they come from. But the problem you're probably going to run into... Is that you're a young guy? It says, let no one despise you for your youth. See, in our day and age, we have several age categories. We have newborns and infants and toddlers and teenagers and young adult and adult and senior adult and happy timers. And we just have this spectrum of ages and categories. But at ancient Israel, there was only two young and old. And Paul says, you are to teach these things with authority. But do not let them despise you for your youth. Why, why bring attention to this? Because these things are important. They are truths. But something is not true or false because you are young or old. Right? This is what we would call a logical fallacy because that's arbitrary. So if I teach such doctrine, say, as we reject universalism, well, that's not true or false because I'm a young person. It's either true or it's false. I'm either right or wrong on that. But if I'm wrong, it's not because I'm young. It's just because I'm wrong. And the other reason is, is we have no control over our age. It's like, it's like focusing on race or eye color. So if Philip comes to me and says, I don't like what you're teaching. I don't like what you're doing. You're just a young, snot-nosed kid. Philip would never do that. So I'm using him as the example. I would say, what do you want me to do about my age? Nothing. Nobody here gets to choose when they're born. Or if I come up to Philip, I say, Philip, you're just an old, crotchety man, and I'm tired of hearing you. I'm tired of you telling me all these things. This is just wrong because you're old and crotchety. And Philip would respond, what would you like me to do about that? I can't rewind the clock. Nobody can change when they're born. It's like focusing on race. We don't have any control over this. So Timothy says, do not let them despise you for your youth. As one commentator put it, the congregation is to treat their pastors as a Timothy and not a Timmy. As a Timothy and not a Timmy. And really, First Baptist Church can say yes and amen to these things because we have a history of young pastors who have faithfully served this church for over 125 years. Ed Rogers was 27 years old when he came here, and he served the church for 34 years. Dan Turner served the church for 26 years, and he served and he came in view of a call at age 26. Zane Powers has served for nearly 20 years, and he came here at the tender age of 21. I was 24 when I came here. Matt Price was 35 when he came here. These are all young numbers by any stretch of the imagination. These are all young pastors. But Paul says, don't let the congregation despise you for your age. Don't let them despise you for this. But instead, the antidote to the anticipated problem is to what? Set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. So the primary and foundational purpose of the pastor is to set the example. He is to set the example. He doesn't tell Timothy, shove the troop down their throat, kick them out. He doesn't say any of this. It is setting a godly example. That's the antidote. And we see this example in two things. In realms of an example, speech and conduct. And we see the qualities of the example that are love, faith, and purity. And, of course, the foundational example that the pastor, the good servant of Christ Jesus is who said, is in speech. Why? Because he's teaching. And he's teaching with authority. And he's teaching good doctrine and scripture. So the things that he says must be exemplary. An exemplary speech is marked by truth. In Ephesians 4:25 says therefore having put away falsehood let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one another. It must be true. Hence the foundation, training in scripture and training in good doctrine. The example must be true, but not only are you to talk the talk, you are also to walk the walk in conduct. Your doctrine, what you teach, what you say, must be true, but your life must also be an example, a reflection of that true doctrine and life, training in scripture and in godliness, hand in hand. He never lets us get away from this. We need both of these realms as an example for the congregation. And he describes this realm of example, with love, faith, and purity. Love is, of course, the crowning Christian ethic. It is the foundation of the fruits of the Spirit. It is a gift from God. Faith or faithfulness as well is also a fruit of the Spirit. It's a gift from God. Are we praying for our pastors that they are growing and receiving in abundance the gift of love and faith and purity? And this final descriptor is purity. And, of course, Jesus talks as you need to have purity of heart, purity of motive. That's, of of course, true. But I think for this letter, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. Because we only see this word used like this twice in the New Testament. Both are right here in purity. And in chapter 5, verse 2, just down there, it says, You are to treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So I think the emphasis is on sexual purity for the pastor, meaning that a pastor, a good, true servant of Christ Jesus, treats the women in his congregation as if they were his mother or his sister. If you wouldn't talk that way to your mother, you don't talk to the ladies here that way. If you wouldn't act that way in public with or in private with your sister that way, then you shouldn't do so with the women of the congregation. You are to set an example in purity And this makes sense because of one of the qualifying factors of a pastor and a deacon, both good servants, and they are to be a one-woman man. So we see this kind of brought back. So the primary purpose or the foundational purpose of the pastor of a good servant of Christ Jesus is to set the example. But then he is also to set the priority of the church. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, into teaching. Until I come, set these things as the priority. Until I come. So Paul is warning, or not warning, but telling Timothy, hey, I'm going to be visiting you. And until that time, devote yourself. Set the priority. Set this as the course here. The, the emphasis of your ministry and your church is to be what? The public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. All three of these. Devote yourself so that these are the priorities, and the foundational priority is what? The public reading of Scripture. The public reading of Scripture. The reading aloud of the Bible. This is not public reading as in you take your Bible and you go to Walmart and you're reading the Bible there to yourself. That's, that's good and well as well. But for congregational worship, when the church gathers, the priority is to read the Scriptures. And this is always the first thing that I look at when I'm looking at a church. So if I'm going out of town, I don't want to go to church, or if somebody else is moving and they're looking at this church, they'll send me a video saying, hey, what do you think of this church? The very first thing that I look at is are they reading the scriptures? Do they simply stand up, pull out a Bible, and read the Bible? I don't want your stories. I don't want your antidotes. I don't want your, your jokes. I just want to hear the Word of God. And I'm highly suspicious of churches who will just not read the Bible to their people. Because what that communicates to me is that my stories, my jokes, my personality is what's important. And it's more important than the Word of God. So if you're visiting with us today and you're visiting other churches trying to figure out where to find a church home, may I suggest to you, look to see if they simply read the Bible in their service. You'll knock off 95% of churches really quick. There are other things as well, but that's an easy first step. And it's the first priority that Paul gives Timothy is to read the scriptures aloud to their people. But you are also to what? To exhortation, or as your translation may say, to preaching. Preaching what? The scriptures, the immediate context. You're going to read the scripture, you're going to exhort the scripture, and you're going to what? Teach the scripture. That's the context. We can't just teach or preach any old thing. Do they preach the Scriptures? Now, this is more than just head knowledge. This is more than, hey, this word means this. Here's this doctrine. Here's the information. This is more of, how do we apply this? What do I do with this head knowledge that we have received? Such as we just did. The Bible says that you should read the Scriptures aloud in the congregation. And so we apply that by saying, hey, if you're leaving here looking for a new church, Make one of the first things you look at, do they just read the Bible? So that's, that's an example of, say, preaching, exhorting the Scripture. But in order to know what to preach, you also need to teach the Scripture, the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. This is, this is the head knowledge. Because how do you know what to do if you don't know what it is? And you're not going to know what it is if you don't at least read it. See how they're all dependent upon each other. You must teach the things of Scripture. And we have no lack of pastors who do not teach. And they don't teach because they didn't pay attention to the foundational verse 6. They're not training in the Scriptures. They're not training in good doctrine. Therefore, they have no tools. They have no ability to teach because they didn't take that part seriously. So you are to read the Scripture, to preach the Scripture, and to teach the Scripture And this is really the priority of the pastor and the church. This is Paul's template for a successful church. Notice that Paul did not say, here's your five-step program, Timothy, to grow your congregation to 500 members. Paul doesn't give two licks about that. No, he says, this is your priority. This is where your energy goes. It is to what? The reading of Scripture, to the preaching of Scripture, and to the teaching of Scripture. That's all we have to offer. If a church isn't doing that, I think we can hardly call it a church at all. Because that's the priority. That's the template. Do you know that to be true today? Do you know that if this church in five years does not add a single person to the role and doesn't add a single dollar to the bank, but everybody grows in godliness and in the scriptures, that's a successful church? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Or do we like our ears tickled? by false doctrine and false teachers and all the stuff that don't eat the pork and (laughs) look at these genealogies and these codes and all the numbers, all the junk. Or do we take scripture serious in saying, this is where our energy goes, not to there. So the purpose of a pastor, of a good servant of Christ Jesus, is to set the example and set the priority of the church. In regards to the priority in verse 14, he tells us, Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Do not neglect the gift. What's the gift? Immediate context, teaching, preaching, and reading the word. Do not neglect this gift. And we can be thankful and say yes and amen to this instruction because we do have a senior pastor who reads the scripture, who teaches the scripture, and takes these things serious. He doesn't allow the other pastors to neglect the gift of preaching and teaching. Why? Because that's the priority. That's the template. So this is what we are doing this morning. We are not neglecting this gift because it's the priority. And we can be thankful that we have a senior pastor that does that. He's not just pulpit fill-in whenever he's gone. He's actually here this morning. In fact, I've got to hear Zane preach more since Matt has been here than any other time and I can't say that of maybe but one other pastor out of dozens that I know because they take the scripture seriously when it says do not neglect the gift pastors do not neglect the gift that you have and if it's a gift it was obviously what given which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you the gift was given by God church do you know that churches in and of themselves do not make pastors and do not make deacons No, we simply recognize pastors. God gives the gift of teaching and preaching, but we simply recognize what God has done. God gives the gift of service for deacons. We simply recognize what God has done. And we see this in this picture here. By prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This is just an ordination service. The laying on of hands. The Old Testament image. Joshua and Moses. The transferring of power, if you will, or the submission to authority. We recognize what God is doing right here. We didn't make this happen. We recognize that this is happening by the laying on of hands, by an ordination service. And notice who is laying on the hands. It's elders, not elder. But elders, plural, every time we see the office of pastor or elder, it is always in the plural. That's the biblical example, it is a plurality of elders, whether lay or professional. That part doesn't matter necessarily in and of itself. But it does matter that it is a plurality of elders because that's the biblical example. And again, we take the Bible serious. And of course, we say yes and amen to this. This church, as far as I know, has always had a plurality of pastors. Because if you only have one person leading the ship, typically that person has their particular strengths and weakness. And they start to lean one direction until they topple the ship over and it becomes shipwrecked. And that's the language that Paul uses, that we want to avoid those things. And one of the models that we see to help us avoid that is a plurality of elders. Because I have my strengths and weaknesses, and the weaknesses are many. But my weaknesses and strengths are different than Matthew Price's and different than Zane Powers. And so we come together to make sure the ship stays balanced so that way we don't lose the priority in the example. We bring our own strengths and weaknesses to the table. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen says, as iron sharpens iron one man sharpens another so the biblical model that we see is a plurality of elders and they are to not neglect the gift which was given by God and the church affirms in ordination but instead of not neglecting the gift the positive side is verse 15 practice these things immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress notice that Paul says you are to practice these things what is these things the gift which was given. What is the gift? The teaching, preaching, and reading of the word. The immediate context. Practice these things. And I take encouragement from this verse because I literally have to practice my sermons. I literally have to take my Bible after all the notes and things in there. I have to go find a, a barren practice room somewhere in the church where nobody can see me. And I have to run through the passage oh, a dozen times at least. And the very first time that I ran through this passage, I had a little heresy slipped out at the beginning. Totally accident. And I skipped over verse 10 the very first time. I'm just going to let you all go into the heresy of universalism, apparently. So this is why we literally have to practice this gift. To not neglect, but to practice these things. This is how I practice these things. Matt practices it each week. Every Sunday, he gets another go. So if he really messes up next Sunday... He gets the next Sunday to keep practicing. Zane practices through the years. He's been at it a long time, 20 years. We are to practice these things, to immerse ourselves in them, to immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Literally be in them and about doing these things so that people can tell that you're progressing. If you're progressing, that is what? Practicing. That's, that's how we sum that up at the beginning. Immerse yourself. Be about doing these things. Immerse yourself so that all may see your progress. Notice this is all, and all means all. That means everybody here, but it also means the elders of the church as well. The elders and the congregation want to see that their pastors are growing in the gift of teaching and preaching and reading, and that's what we're doing this morning. That's why Matthew Price is here, and he doesn't just take the Sunday off because he's not preaching and Who cares about whoever fills the pulpit? No, he wants to see, are my pastors growing in this gift? Are they keeping the priority set in the church? Are they setting the godly example? Are they growing in these things? And the congregation wants to see this because if their pastors are growing in the right things, in the right direction according to Scripture and good doctrine, then that means the church is growing in those things. And they are the benefactor of this growth. All of us should long to see all the pastors grow in these gifts. These are the things that we are to be doing. And once you have this in mind, once you set the priority and set the example, a good servant of Christ Jesus sets the course. Sets the course in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch. Watch out what's going on. Don't let these things slide. Keep an eye on it. Set the course. These are our guardrails. What? Godly example, preaching, teaching, and reading the Word. That's what we do. Now set the guardrails right there. Outside does not come in. This is what we do as a church. We set the course of the church to literally keep a close watch on what? Yourself and teaching. Yourself, godliness, what you do, what you say, and what? You're teaching life and doctrine, hand in hand, two sides of the same coin. That's the priority. That's the example. And you need to be sure that this is the course of this church and your ministry. Set the course. And when you set the course, you are to what? Persist in this. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, we're not used to talking in this kind of language where the pastor is saving himself And his hearers. Again, this is where the good doctrine comes into play. This is more than Scripture. Rightly applying the Scripture that we see. Because the pastor is saving himself and the hearers. And that rubs us a little bit. But notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the pastor is the savior of himself or his hearers. This is a distinction between cause and means. Only God causes salvation. He only causes salvation in a certain way. By faith, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ according to the scriptures and for his glory. That's the path. God causes that to happen, but God also ordains the means by which that happens. He doesn't use other things to save anybody, He has ordained the means as well as the ends. He causes the salvation but he causes it with these means. That's why it's important to set the course, to keep these things the priority, to set the godly the example, because this is how what God has done to ordain the means. Romans 10:14 says, "How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent?" As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the only means by which God has chosen to save men. It's not through, you see, a beautiful sunrise, salvation. No, by grace through faith in Christ, according to the scriptures, for his glory alone. This is the only means by which God will save anybody. The gospel, the good news, that Christ died according to the scriptures. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And these scriptures need to be trained in and preached. So church, do you feel the weight of where we started? Of why John Knox would say something that never have I feared the devil, but every time I enter the pulpit, I tremble. Do you feel that weight with the pastors this morning? Because guess what? It's not just us. It starts here. But fathers... Are you setting the priority? Are you setting the example to your wives and children? Are you training in the scriptures? Are you training in godliness? Are you preaching to your family? Wives, are you doing the same thing with your children? And for everybody else, when we leave here today, do we feel that weight that nobody will be saved apart from Christ? Are you preaching the scriptures to a lost world? Do you feel the weight of this this morning? If not, we invite you to join us because this is the priority. This is all we have. We're nothing special, but we are biblical, and that's what we do. Anything apart from this, we don't do. This is the example. This is the priority. This is the course of this church, and the pastors are to train in these scriptures and train in this godliness. That is what your call is this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken through your word, regardless of any words that I have said, that we have at least heard the scriptures read. And we know that your word will leave here not in vain, that it will accomplish exactly what you want it to accomplish today and in this time. I pray for this congregation that they will continue to grow in these scriptures and in good doctrine and in godliness and that they will follow the pastor's example regardless of age, follow the purpose in which he sets the preaching and teaching of his word. We thank you that you have blessed us with so many wonderful pastors and leaders and deacons and good servants of Christ Jesus in this church. Help us to grow each and every day to keep the main things the main things. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
0: thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll
1: see you next time.